for all those who are visiting with us, uh, we are privileged and honored to have you, and we thank you for being here with us. Uh, we uh, just ask if you would, if you're comfortable, we'd love to be able to speak with you. But again, just know that you're more than comfortable just to slip on out because of the whole virus situation. Um, with that said, uh, we will be in Ezekiel, and we will be starting a new uh, sermon series this week. We will be looking through the book of Ezekiel. We'll be looking at Ezekiel. But before we get into the book proper, we'll do a little bit of an overarching flyby of what this book presents to us. Uh, but before we do that, let us bow our heads in prayer and pray that God's blessing would be upon us. Father, your word is truth. Your Son has come bearing to us this truth. And Lord, we are to learn this truth by having our heads in the text that we might arise in the presence of God. Lord, help us in this manner. Help us bow in submission to your word, not to the words of a mere feeble preacher, but to the words of the living God who is able to convert the soul and to enliven uh, in, in one's life, in one's heart, a renewed love or a new love for you and for your gospel. Lord, help these words to be true this day, wherever uh, this message is heard and wherever the gospel is preached on this Lord's day. Lord, we love you. We thank you. We ask this in your son's name. Amen. In our scripture reading for this morning in Revelation, we saw the great depiction in which all of God's history has been moving toward since the creation of the world. This depiction of God's people before the presence of God is the glorious angle of God's redemption in history. In this vision of John, we see the grand narrative of God's redemptive story come to its intended goal, God dwelling perfectly and completely with his people. The reason I chose this scripture reading is because the language and imagery employed in this vision comes primarily from the prophet Ezekiel. Towards the end of his work, the prophet Ezekiel, he prophesies these otherworldly realities of God, that this idea of God dwelling with his people in this new creation uh, a, a paradigm. But to truly appreciate these realities, this dwelling of God theme, we must come to understand the entirety of the book of Ezekiel to truly understand its meaning and importance for us today. The book of Ezekiel is not a prophecy of God merely bringing in the new heavens and the new earth. Ezekiel is first and foremost a book of great tumult and destruction on the last remnant of Israel, Judah and its capital city, Jerusalem. Ezekiel prophesies in horrifying detail the lowest point of Israel's history, the presence of God being removed from the temple. Before we get into this book, I want us to have an overview of how we approach this book. The structure of this book follows a major motif that is repeated throughout the entirety of the scriptures. And I call this the divine movement motif. I'm going to put a little registered mark on that. The divine movement motif. And we can summarize this divine, this divine movement in three ways. First, God with us. God with us. Second, God from us. God from us and God towards us. God towards us. That, that's the movement. 
that we see throughout Scripture and what we will see in Ezekiel. God with us, God from us, and God towards us. And these will be our three major points for this morning. So first, God with us. Uh, actually, before we uh, begin, let, let's read Ezekiel 1, just to get a, a glimpse of these otherworldly uh, Im- images in our minds. So Ezekiel chapter 1. In the thirteenth year, in the fourth month, on the fifth day of the month, as I was among the exiles of the Chabar Canal, the heavens were opened, and I saw visions of God. On the fifth day of the month, it was the fifth year of the exile that came Jehoiachin, the word of the Lord came to Ezekiel the priest, the son of Buzi, in the land of the Chaldeans by the Shabar Canal, and the hand of the Lord was upon him there. As I looked, behold, a stormy wind came out of the north, and a great cloud with brightness around it, and fire flashing forth continually, and in the midst of the fire, as it was gleaming metal. And from the midst of it came the likeness of four living creatures, and this was their appearance. They had a human likeness, but each had four faces, and each of them had four wings. The legs were straight, and their soles on their feet were like the soles of a calf's foot. And they, uh, and they sparkled with burnished bronze. Under their wings on their four sides they had human hands, and the four uh, had their faces and their wings thus. Their wings touched one another. Each one of them went straight forward without turning as they went. And for the likeness of their faces, each had a face. And the four had the face of a lion on the right side. And the four, uh, and the four had the face on, of an ox on the left side. And the four had the face of an eagle. Such were their faces. And the wings were spread out above. Each creature had two wings, each one, each of which touched the wing of the other, while two covered their bodies. And each went straight forward. Whether the spirit would go, they, wherever the spirit would go, they went, without turning as they went. As the lightness of the living creatures, their appearance was like the burning coals of fire, like the appearance of torches moving to and fro among the living creatures. And the fire was bright, and out of the fire went forth lightning. And the living creatures darted to and fro, like the appearance of a flash of the lightning. Now, as I looked at the creatures, I saw a wheel on the earth beside the living creatures, one for each of the four of them. As for the appearance of the wheels and their construction, their appearance was like a gleaming of barrel, and the four had the same likeness, their appearance and construction being, as it were, a wheel within a wheel. When they went, they went in any of the four directions, without turning as they went. And the rims were tall and awesome, and the rims of all four were of eyes all around. And when the living creatures went, the wheels went beside them. And when the living creatures rose from the earth, the wheels rose. Wherever the spirit wanted to go, they went, and the wheels rose along with them. For the spirit of the living creatures was in the wheels. When those went, these went. And when those stood... These stood, and when those rose from the earth, the wheels rose along with them, for the spirit of the living creatures was in the wheels. Over the heads of the living creatures was the likeness of an expanse, shining like awe-inspiring, awe-inspiring crystal, spread out above their heads. And under the expanse, their wings were stretched out straight, one toward another. And each creature had two wings covering its body. And they went, and as they went... I heard the sound of their wings like the sound of many waters, like the sound of the Almighty, a sound of tumult, like the sound of an army. When they stood there, uh, excuse me, when they stood still, they let down their wings, 
And there came a voice from above the expanse of their heads. When they stood still, they let down their wings. And above the expanse of their heads, there was the likeness of a throne, an appearance like sapphire, and seated above the likeness of the throne and it was the likeness of a human appearance. And upward from, from what had the, uh, the appearance of his waist, I saw it as gleaming metal, like the appearance of fire enclosed all around. And downward was that... Well, and downward from what had the appearance of his waist, I saw, as it were, the appearance of fire, and there was brightness all around. Like the appearance of the bow that is in the cloud of the day of rain, so was the appearance of the brightness all around. Such was the appearance of the, of the likeness of the glory of the Lord. And when I saw it, I fell on my face, and I heard the voice of one speaking. The grass withers, the flower fades, but the word of our God will stand forever. So with that imagery in our heads of both revelation and the beginning of Ezekiel, let's begin with uh, our message today. Our first point, God with us. At the very beginning of the redemptive story, God dwelt with mankind. In the garden, God's benevolent presence was with man, with Adam and Eve. In Genesis 2, 8 through 9, it states this, The tree that is pleasant, I'm sorry, and the Lord God planted a garden in Eden. In the east, there he put the man whom he had formed. And out of the garden, the Lord God made to spring up every tree that is pleasant to the sight and good for food. The tree of life was in the midst of the garden, and the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. The tree of life. Not only was man sustained by God in a fruitful garden, God's presence was with Adam as symbolized by the tree of life. And God's presence in the garden was also manifested through the symbolism of the wind or the cloud. As we see in Genesis 3.8, the wind of the, wind of the day or the, the, the breath of the day. In the very beginning, God's relation to his human, human image bearers was one of benevolence and friendship. And this communion, this fellowship, was communicated through the manifestation of God's glory and His presence through symbols and imagery. There was full communion of God's life-giving presence with His creatures. There was a knowledge of friendship between God and His people in the garden. In this manner, God was with Adam and Eve in the garden, and God's presence was communicated through the imagery of the tree of life and the cloud of God's presence. This pattern of communion, this pattern of God with us, is not just simply limited to the garden. This pattern of this glory cloud and the tree of life. Even after the fall, God was still able to commune with his people. Though it was in different degrees due to man's newfound sinful estate, God was able to commune with his people. The presence and communion of God that was symbolized by the tree of life and the cloud in the garden came to be symbolized at other points in Israel's history. For example, at the formal establishment of Israel, as God's covenant people, God manifested his glorious presence in the pillar of cloud and fire. For Ezekiel and his audience, the imagery of the pillar of cloud and fire would symbolize God's presence with them. In 1 Kings 8 and 10, we see the imagery of the dark cloud fill the new-founded temple that Solomon had established. 
1 King 8.10 states this, And when the priests came out of the holy place, a cloud filled the house of the Lord, so that the priests would not stand to minister because of the cloud. For the, glory of the, for the glory of the Lord filled the house of the Lord. There's a further connection to the garden because the lampstands in the temple would reflect the imagery of the tree of life. They were stamped out to look like a tree bearing fruit. So with this dual imagery of the tree of life and the glory cloud, the temple acted, if we could say this, as a miniature Eden. The temple was the personification and emblem of God's benevolent presence and communion with Israel. Getting to the context of the book of Ezekiel, the temple was still standing at this point. And this was the hope of the exiles at the Chabar Canal. And as we will see in this series, many of the exiles hoped that this was just a temporary covenant curse. That they were exiled just for a, short little, a few short years because of their sins. After their brief, uh, their brief discipline, as they thought, they hoped to return to Judah and participate again in the worship of God at the temple. For exiles and Babylonian captivity, they recognized that God was with them through the representation of the temple, with all of its imagery and the glory cloud that filled it. Even in the midst of exile, God was still with them because the temple stood. The temple communicated God's benevolence and goodness to Israel, even in the midst of exile. And by God communicating His presence through these images, we, He was showing that He had communion with them. Just as in the garden, the tree of life and glory cloud communicated God's communion with Adam and Eve, so it was when God had created and established Israel. He communicated His, his benevolent presence. He communicated, in other words, His communion with Israel. Just as God was with Adam at the creation in the garden, God was with Israel at that time in the temple. From this first point, we see that Israel had an initial relation to God. God was with Israel. I'm going to use some old theological terms, but I think they're helpful here. In the old terminology, the idea of God with us can be put in a couple of ways, but I think the term communion is helpful. I think for the majority of us, we know this term intuitively or through the context of our Christianese, right? We can describe communion in relation to the Lord's Supper or to our fellowship as Christians or even our fellowship with Christ, which is more than appropriate. All these places are, are good places to go to describe communion. But if I were to ask you, what is the definition of communion? What is the definition of communion? Just kind of a pause, right? When I was first studying this, I could not conjure up a good definition of what communion is. I could only describe it by talking around it. We know what communion is, but we can't quite describe it in words. So let, let's see, just for a, a thought experiment here, and I, I will be using you all as guinea pigs, let's see if we can put some substance to this word communion. The definition of communion, historically speaking, is simply holding or sharing in common. For example, a, a, an Ole Miss fan holds in common with another Ole Miss fan a love for their team. Who knows why? Hey, Pastor Wynn. 
political party members share in common values and policies that their party may share in. Mississippians should, I would say, share a common love for their state. I could go on and on in ways that men and women share in common certain beliefs, ideologies, common interests, loves, and and concerns. But in in the context of Adam or Israel's communion with God, communion is the idea of sharing or holding a common life between God and man. Let me say that again. In the context of Adam or Israel's communion with God, communion is the idea of sharing or holding a common life between God and man. You see, God is the fount of all life. He is the fount of all life and blessing, all blessed life. So when either Adam or Israel commune with God, they share in that life and the blessing of God. They share in common. They commune in the blessed life that is God. But we also need to understand this. In order for Adam or Israel to commune, to share in God's blessed life, God first must communicate it. The term communicate is connected both etymologically and theologically to communion. If communion is sharing in common, communicating is making common. Communion is a status of God's blessed life shared with his people. But communication is the action by which that status is shared. It's the action by which that status comes to be. In order for Adam or Israel to share in common, the, uh, to share in common God's life, God first must make it common to them. This is similar to when a thought leader gets up and shares his beliefs with the aim that we too would hold in common share beliefs. Uh, we we kind of know this by, by experience. In the late 2000s and early 2010s, y'all, are y'all familiar with TED Talks? Uh, they're, they're very popular on YouTube. I spend way too much time looking at them. Amen? Amen. Uh, TED Talks were all the rage during this time. These talks were just a venue in which people were able to discuss their beliefs or ideas. The most notable and most noteworthy of ideas were right next to the most obscure people talking about their beliefs. But they were able to communicate it. They were able to make it known. They were able to make common their beliefs to those who did not know or understand those thoughts or ideologies. But ultimately, the aim of this communication was that there would be now a shared community in which those beliefs were held. Communication takes place in order that a communion or a community is created. So with those definition minds, let's return back to Ezekiel. In the example of Adam, God communicated his benevolent presence in life to him through the glory cloud and the tree of life. For Israel, God communicated his benevolent presence and life to them in the glory cloud that filled the temple. As long as that temple stood, Israel understood that God still shared his life with them. By God communicating his goodness and life to Israel, Israel shared in, they held in common, the life that God provided his creatures. Ultimately, we could summarize God's communication to Israel as, I'm with you. 
When Israel saw or thought of the temple, they remembered their communion with their God. God with us. God with us. God with us. As long as that temple stands, God with us. But what happens, brothers and sisters, when that temple falls? What happens when that temple falls? This brings us to our second point, God from us. In the beginning chapters of Ezekiel 1 to 3, we see Ezekiel commissioned to pronounce judgment against Jerusalem. In Ezekiel 4 to 18, we get repeated warnings that God will desolate his people for their sins. Over and over and over again. The Lord promises that he will not relent from his punishment. And it culminates with the horrific vision of the Lord removing his presence from the temple. In chapters 10, verse 18 to 19, please turn there with me. Chapter 10, verses 18 to 19, we read these words. Ezekiel 10, verses 18 to 19. Then the glory of the Lord went out from the threshold of his house, of the house, and stood over the cherubim. And the cherubim lifted up their wings and mounted up from the earth before my eyes as they went, with the wheels beside them. And they stood at the entrance of the east gate of the house of the Lord, and the glory of the God of Israel was over them, meaning that he is departing in this instance. This is a depiction of God's glory departing for the presence of the temple. From chapter 10 to 24, Ezekiel's visions and words will continue to indict Jerusalem until the city falls. Without the presence of God, they are completely lost. Without his sanctifying presence, without God's benevolence being communicated to them, with God from them, or rather I should use this word, rather God against them, the people of Israel are to tremble before the justice and holiness of their God. Jerusalem is not only one, Jerusalem is not the only one who's to, to tremble before God. The nations that surround Jerusalem experience judgment as well. In chapters 25 through 32, God speaks judgment against the nations, particularly Tyre and Egypt received an extended cursing. But the way that God speaks of their cursing is very unique and should cause us to pause. For example, if you would, please turn to Ezekiel 28, verse 22. I need all of us to turn to this passage. Ezekiel chapter 28, verse 22. As you're turning, this passage is directed against the nation of Tyre and its partner city-state, Sidon. Notice how God speaks of His holiness in relation to His judgment. Thus says the Lord God, Behold, I am against you, O Sidon, and I will manifest my glory in your midst. And they shall know that I am the Lord when I execute judgments in her and manifest my glory, my holiness in her. For I will send pestilence into her and blood into her streets. And the slain shall fall in her midst by the sword that is against her on every side. Then they will know that I am the Lord. Notice there in verse 
22. Executing judgments and manifesting holiness. The manifestation of God's holiness are coordinate here. One is simply another way of speaking of the other. God's manifesting His holiness is through judging sinful nations, both Jerusalem and her surrounding nations. Just as Tyre will fall by God's manifestation and the manifesting of His glory, so too will Jerusalem. What we can immediately take from these judgments, these judgment sections, is that though God's benevolent presence is stripped from Jerusalem, though God's benevolent presence is still there, is not is stripped from uh, is stripped from Jerusalem. We need to catch that God is very much so there, but God is not there as a blessing, but as a curse. In popular presentations of the gospel, it can be appropriate to speak of the separation from God as the punishment of sin. We are separated from God. We're separated from His benevolence and His eternal life. But if we merely understand a sinner's wretched estate in these terms, we will miss something crucial. We are separated from God. That is, that God is from us. But we should more appropriately see it. As God against us. It's not simply that that we are far from Him or that He is far from us. It's that He is against us. We are the enemies and rebels of God left to ourselves. And as the sovereign king, God has the right and responsibility to decimate his enemies. In order for God to be God, he must punish sinners and rebels. Anything less than absolute justice and holiness is not the God of the Bible. As this imagery of God manifesting his his holiness shows, God is not some aloof deity apathetic to the offense and rebellions uh, and rebellion that sinners manifest in themselves he's not aloof to the problem no god is not mocked as the divine ruler of his creation and the unique covenant lord of israel he will vindicate his holiness by causing the destruction and obliteration of all his enemies both temporally and eternally. By God removing His presence, the communication of God's life and goodness is severed. And the blessed life promised to Israel is in the land is taken away. God's communication to and communion with Israel is broken as it is with all mankind. Through their sin, Israel becomes just like the rest of the nations and all mankind. They are severed from the life and fellowship with God. Without God's continued presence, Israel is shown for what she really is. A nation like all the others. A people enveloped in sin and rebellion. And a rebellious people who God will vindicate His justice against. Who God will vindicate His holiness against. Without God's benevolence, without even His common grace, 
There is nothing to keep him back from his utter fury that stems from his own holy character. Brothers, if there's anything that we can learn today, if there's anything that you learn, if there's anything that you speak to others about, is that it's this. God is dangerous. God is dangerous. He's not one to be trifled with. He's not one to turn a blind eye to sin. If sin characterizes our lives, if sin is the overarching pattern of our day to day, then we must be warned. God is not mocked. We will reap what we sow. If we give ourselves to the things of sin and flesh, we will reap those rewards. And that reward is eternal death and destruction. What we saw there in Revelation 21. The second death. We must never presume that once we get saved, whatever that means, that we have no need to hear of these things again. We must never presume upon the grace of God. Grace is given to us that we might fear God and His holiness. Not to blow it off as if it's no big deal. We must remember that Ezekiel is prophesying that his audience is exiles in Babylon who had taken for granted the temple, that the temple means something to them. Ezekiel proclaims these words to his audience, believing Israelites that they would fear the holy wrath of their God and not presume on some mere outward sign that they are right with God. I've known too many brothers who've made a shipwreck of their faith because they have never learned a healthy fear of the Lord. And typically, and typically, presumption of their salvation is confused with the assurance of their salvation. The doctrine of assurance doesn't mean that you always personally know that you're in right standing before God. It doesn't. In fact, I would argue that those who at times doubt their assurance are those who should actually be assured. But those who never doubt their salvation might need a reality check. According to Scripture, our assurance is both objective and subjective. It is objective because our assurance is based upon Christ's perfect work for us on the cross. Yes, but it is subjective in that we know that Christ has worked in us to believe in the cross because of the Spirit's activity of conforming us to the image of God and us bearing the spiritual fruit of Christ. Yes, Christians are not those who should fall into slavish fear. But we do tremble at God's threatenings, as our confession says. A healthy fear of God and His judgment is to characterize the Christian. When the fear of God is produced by us reading or hearing the Word, particularly Ezekiel, and this is what Ezekiel does, it makes us humbled. It crumbles any approach. It, 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 it completely crumbles any approach to works righteousness. Reading the Word, reading Ezekiel in particular, it is a means of grace in which we remember that only God can save us from Himself. 
and we cling only harder and harder to Christ as our salvation if these things are true. That said, not all those who are acquainted with the Christian faith should tremble before God. For those who are not members of this local assembly, we have some visitors here today. I'm glad that you are here. I'm thankful for you. But we also have children who are not members of this local body, who have not professed faith in Christ. Let me ask this plainly. Children, visitors, do you know the salvation that Christ provides? Do you know the new life that He lavishes upon you? Upon His people? Do you understand what it means if you do not know of Christ and His salvation? Friends, if you do not, it means that you are condemned sinners before God. And you stand in opposition and rebellion against our God. If you have not repented from your sins... If you, if you have not turned from your rebellion, however small or grand that may be, then you stand in opposition towards God. But even more terrifying is this. If you stand in opposition to God, God stands in opposition towards you. He stands against you. And just as God manifested His glory in decimating the nations, He too will manifest His glory in sentencing all rebels to an everlasting hell. Brothers, visitors, friends, God is dangerous. Do not think otherwise. Friends, if you stand in opposition to God in any manner, whether through apathy or outright rebellion, then He will manifest His glory. And His glory will be your horror. Ezekiel saw and his audience heard of the day of God's judgment. God's benevolence was far from them, but His holiness was was right there, displayed through his justice against sin. Oh, brothers, if us, the people of God, whether those of our children who do not belong to us, Lord, may God grant us repentance to flee from this wrath to come, that we might not know God's manifestation of his holiness in judgment, but that we would know the manifestation of his holiness through salvation. This brings us to our third and final point, a point that we will spend a little bit more time on this morning. So our third point, God toward us. This pattern of God being with His people, His people sinning and His people removing themselves from His presence is repeated throughout the Scriptures. The entirety of the Old Testament is, a, is simply repeated of counts of Israel's continued unfaithfulness and God's faithfulness to punish His people. But praise God that the story does not end there. 
Though God is against us in our sin, God still comes towards us, rebels. Which is our third point. God comes towards us. At the garden, God had every right to condemn mankind forever in their sin. After Israel failed for the umpteenth time, God had every right to leave them to become like the rest of the nations, condemn further and further in their sin. But God is not only just and holy, He is both merciful and gracious. Even at the first curse in the Bible, God pledged that the woman's offspring would destroy the serpent. Genesis 3.15 At the end of the old covenant curses, God pledged to Israel that after their inevitable exile, that He would do something new in their midst. In Deuteronomy 30, in fact, let's all turn there if we would. In Deuteronomy 30, verses 1-6, to we read these words. Deuteronomy 30. First six verses. Deuteronomy 30, verse 1. And when all these things come upon you, speaking to Israel, God to Israel, the blessing and, uh, I'm sorry, Moses to Israel rather, the blessing and the curse, which I have set before you, you and you call them to mind before, uh, among all the nations where the Lord your God has driven you. So they're in exile. And return to the Lord your God, you and your children, and obey His voice in all that I command you today, with all your heart and with all your soul. Then the Lord your God will will restore your fortunes and have mercy on you. And He will gather you again from all the peoples where the Lord your God has scattered you. If your outcasts are in the uttermost parts of heaven, from there the uh, the Lord your God will gather you. And from there He will take you. And the Lord your God will bring you into the land that your fathers possessed, that you, that you may possess it. And he will, give you, uh, he will make you more prosperous and numerous than your fathers. Verse 6 is key. And the Lord your God will circumcise your heart and the, offspring, and the heart of your offspring, so that you will love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul, that you may live. So at the time of Ezekiel's writing, God had every right to forsake the Israelites. But He made a promise all the way back into the wilderness before Israel had even entered into the promised land. Israel would eventually be cursed and exiled, but they would return to land and be circumcised in their hearts. In Ezekiel chapters 33 through 48, we see prophecies concerning the return of the exiles to the land, the renewed life in the land, and the restoration of the temple. In the course of redemptive history, Ezekiel prophesies uh, that this will find an imme- uh, prophecies will find an immediate fulfillment in the events described in Ezra and Nehemiah. In those accounts, we see Jewish exiles return to Judah. We see them rebuild and sanctify the temple. And we even see a higher degree of fidelity among the exiles. But these events that we see in Ezra and Nehemiah, that we see in the closing chapters of the Old Testament history, they do not fully encapsulate what we see in the latter portions of Ezekiel. Ezekiel's visions and prophecies are not a depiction to the status quo before the exile. Ezekiel prophesies and his depictions 
are, are, are of the new heavens and the new earth. It's new heavens and new earth imagery. God speaks through Ezekiel that he is making a whole new creation and a whole new people. No longer will there be a rebellious people prone to forsake their God. No. They will be a people who have a new heart and a spirit. The imagery of the circumcision of the heart from Deuteronomy 30 will be realized in Ezekiel's prophecy of of, of a dead people being revived to life. If you would, please turn to Ezekiel 36, uh, verses 24 through 28. And we'll be here for the remainder uh, of this morning. Ezekiel 36, verses 24 through 28. And again, it's this idea of the circumcision imagery being fulfilled or being being uh, prophesied further here in Ezekiel. Ezekiel 36, 24. I will take you from the nations and gather you from all the countries and bring you into your own land. I will sprinkle clean water on you and you will be clean from your uncleanness and from all your idols I will cleanse you. And I will give you a new heart and a new spirit I will put within you. And I will remove the heart of stone from your flesh and give you a a heart of flesh. And I will put my heart within you and cause you to walk in my statutes and be careful to obey my rules. You shall dwell in the land that I gave to your fathers, and you shall be my people, and I will be your God. This passage from Ezekiel is one of the most beautiful and glorious depictions of God's new creative work. Many churches, many churches that we are associated with, brothers, have been built upon this single passage. And for good reason, too. It's a new creation. The simple fact that God is regenerating, making alive His people is an astonishing reality. Moreover, this is a promise, intangible reality. We can see this literally take place whenever sinners repent and grow in the fear and adoration of our God. We literally see the words of Scripture being fulfilled every time a person comes to faith in Christ. People want miracles nowadays. The grandest miracle is when one turns from his sins and believes in the words of Scriptures. One who communes with his living God. If you want the miraculous, brothers and sisters, preach Christ. There's a miracle. The most miraculous thing in all of creation that we now have is being uh, laid out before us. We see the miraculous take place in our day and age right before our eyes as we plant churches, as we make disciples, as we preach the gospel, and as God gathers His people through the gospel. This is a miraculous new age work. But Ezekiel's prophecies are so much more than God's regenerating work, though it is no less than that. God promises not only a new people, but a new king and temple. In Ezekiel 37, we see a promise of a new Davidic king. And in chapter 48, the promise of God's presence through the temple. To use the terminology from before, God has communion with His spirit-wrought people. He shares His blessed life with His regenerated people. But He communicates that life through the Davidic king and the new temple. Just as before... God communicates His blessing to His people through the imagery of the glory-filled temple. But He adds to His communication something very key. 
And brothers, this is key. In His communication of His divine presence, of His divine blessed life towards His people, that share communion, He communicates it through a person. A person. We read in Ezekiel 36, or 37 these words. You don't have to turn there. My servant David shall be king over them, and they shall all have one shepherd. They shall walk in my rules and be careful to obey my statutes. They shall dwell in the land that I gave to my servant Jacob, where your fathers lived. And they and their children and their children's children shall dwell there forever. And David, my servant, shall be their prince forever. And I will make a covenant of peace with them. It shall be an everlasting covenant with them. And I will set them in their land and multiply them. And I will set my sanctuary, his temple, in their midst forever. My dwelling place shall be with them. And I will be their God. And they shall be my people. Glorious truth. Then the nations will know that I'm the Lord who sanctifies Israel. When my sanctuary is in their midst forever. What did we read in Revelation 21? God is with us. He is there seated eternally through the presence of the temple. From what we saw before, it is no surprise that God would come toward His people again by establishing a new temple. But He then focuses the blessing upon a person by the eternal dominion and presence of the Davidic figure here. The the renewed people are secured in a covenant of peace. And they bask in the eternal presence of their God. In other words, by this Davidic figure reigning, the renewed people are then secured in this eternal, unshaking communion with their God. By the establishment of the Davidic figure, the renewed people of God will partake in the divine communion that is summarized in these beautiful words, I will be their God and they shall be my people. That is the communion. That is the life that we long to have. This communion between God and man is the grand culmination of the story of Scripture. Our communion with God is realized when the Davidic figure reigns in eternity. Brothers, we know who this figure is. Amen? No. Again, I'm a Baptist, brothers. We know who this figure is. Amen? Oh, no, 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 brothers. We know who this figure is. Do we not, brothers? Amen? Amen. Amen. Brothers, we know who He is. We know that it is our Christ Jesus who is presented to us as the Davidic King who reigns forever. There are so many ways that I want us to see how Jesus is the fulfillment of God's plan of renewed communion with people. I wish I could spend the next four hours with you here, but I'm not that kind of person. And I'm not that cruel. And I simply don't have the time this morning. We will have many sermons in the coming weeks and months where we get to chase all the threads of this story and how all of redemptive history is moving toward to show that Christ is seated in the heavens in order for us to commune with our God again. But there's one thing that I want us to take away this morning is this. In order for us to commune with our God again, Christ the God-man had first had to come towards us. 
in order for us to know of and share in the eternal life of our God that He provides, that He is. Christ condescended towards us to communicate to us that life. Or as John says in the Gospel, very simply, in Christ, in Him, was life. And the life was the light of men. In His condescension, in His humiliation, Christ came to us and God dwelt among us in bodily form. In His incarnation, Christ acted as a better temple. Christ came to us and God dwelt with us in that way. And in that way, He is the true and fullest representation of God with us. And through His perfect life, death, resurrection, and ascension, Christ is declared the Son of God in power. He is the Davidic Son reigning on the eternal throne of God. Christ, through His person and work, establishes the eternal covenant of peace prophesied by Ezekiel. By Christ dwelling in the heavenly places, by His Spirit regenerating His new kingdom people, our communion with God is secured and everlasting. This is our King, brothers and sisters. We are secure forever in our communion with God. We have forever eternal life in Christ Jesus. He is our King and He is secured in heaven. And if that is the case, we have eternal communion with our God. I will be your God and you shall be my people. Is found by Christ being seated upon that throne. And that is His glory. Through the communion of the gospel of Jesus Christ, we have a perfect communion with God and everlasting life with Christ. And this motif of God initiating his approach towards us is found in the gospel. It's found in Ezekiel, brothers. In God's proclamation to redeem and regenerate his people, Ezekiel 36, verse 22, if you still have it up, it says this. Thus says the Lord God, it is not for your sake, O house of Israel, that I am about to act, but for the sake of my holy name, which you have profaned among the nations to which you came. And I will vindicate my holiness of my great name, which you have profaned among the nations and which you have profaned among them. And the nations will know that I am the Lord, declares the Lord God, when through you I vindicate my holiness before their eyes. But as we just read, brothers, how does God vindicate His holiness with His people? Is it through judgment? No! It is by cleansing us and by giving us a new heart, by seating His Son upon the throne eternally. It is by cleansing us from our sins and giving us new obedient hearts that His glory, that His holiness is manifested among the nations. Only a merciful and gracious God would come near to sinners such as us. Only by His sheer mercy and love and who He is does God save rebels from wrath. And by His eternal purposes, He manifests His holiness by redeeming rebels like us. He redeemed us, brothers. If you know of Christ and His salvation, He has manifested His glory. He magnifies His character by redeeming us. 
Brothers, the emphasis is not on our redemption. The emphasis on His holiness being manifested just simply through that redemption. His holiness is manifested through that. Just as God manifests His holiness in judgment, God will likewise manifest His holiness in salvation. And God supremely manifested His holiness in salvation by sending His Son for us. Christ came for us. Not because we, because our salvation is the end goal of His saving work. No. Oh, that's so unglorious if it's merely about us. No. Christ came to save us that the Godhead would be magnified among the nations. That is why He came. That is why He served us. That is why. It's not for us. It's for Him. And God loves His glory. God loves His glory. And He will manifest it through the salvation of sinners as He did with us and as we continue the mission that He has given us to do. Amen, brothers. Our salvation is not about us but is holy and perfectly about the God who saved us. Brothers, Ezekiel ends in utter delight, for it prophesies of Christ's complete and utter renewal of the cosmos, despite all that we are. The God of Ezekiel, the book of Ezekiel, will challenge us to sit and hear of God's holiness manifested in his judgment against sin. But the book of Ezekiel will also lift us up to see the God who comes towards His people. To save His people. The book of Ezekiel commands our awe because it shows without a shadow of a doubt that God loves His holy glory and all that He does will manifest His glory. Most preeminently, our salvation in Christ Jesus. Brothers, I pray now, as we begin these beginning weeks and months, I pray now that in this study, we will capture more of the holiness of our God. And I pray that we will come to see our salvation. And this is that our salvation is just merely another glorious avenue by which our God glorifies Himself through Christ. May God grant us eyes to see and ears to hear the holiness of His name. Let us pray. Father, we thank You that You magnify Your name by how You see fit. And Lord, we magnify Your great name because it is the only response in which a God such as so wonderful as You, so holy as You, so glorious as You, is the only proper response in which redeemed rebels may come before you, knowing that you have created a new communion through Christ Jesus, that we might know of your eternal blessed life in him, and that in that reality, Father, help us come before you humbled, begging, knowing that you alone can save, but knowing that your salvation is all about you. Lord, may you be glorified in these coming months. And Lord, may you be glorified on this Lord's Day, wherever your gospel is proclaimed. We ask this in your son's holy, holy, holy name. Amen. Stand together with me. Take your hymnal.
turn to hymn number 2.